Good, good morning, Linworth. It's great to be with you on this beautiful Sunday morning in May, and good morning to all of you joining us online as well. Let's stand and let's worship God together this morning.
Well, it's good to it's good to be with you. It's good to hear your voices. My name's David. I'm one of the worship leaders here, and this is my friend Caleb. And uh, we're leading together here this morning. Um, you know, two voices are better than one. So I uh, hope you'll enjoy uh, just singing along with us this morning. And worship, you know, worship is is really a great thing. You know, and it's not just singing, but but singing is 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 really a, an important part of it. We, we see all through the Bible times when different characters in the Bible would lift up a song of praise and they would just scream and they would cry out and David one time did it in his underwear and you know it's it's not about just making like a nice pre a nice pretty sound you know we don't need a 500 voice choir here to worship so if you have a great voice awesome sing it out if you don't have a great voice great sing out it's really okay because it's about our hearts and it's about the love of God filling our hearts and overflowing out of it. And, you know, when I've done messages on worship, I talk about, hey, you know, we sing out of the overflow, you know. So this morning, let's just let the spirit of the Lord fill our hearts this morning. And as it overflows, let's just cry out to him and just tell him how good he is. So let's continue to worship together.
Open up my eyes in one 
Can ready, set, go back to your classes. And non-kids, uh, say hello and, and good morning to somebody next to you. this morning. This is awesome. So good morning, everybody. My name is Doug Riggle. I'm the Ministry Development Director here at Linworth Road Church. So I want to welcome you here this morning. Uh, this is your first Sunday. Right in front of you is a little card that's called a Connect card. We'd love to get some information. Um, just check that it's your first time here. We've got a gift for you on the way out in the Welcome Center um, as well. Plus, if there's any information that you want after the service or you need prayer, this is for all of us, not just new members. Um, or information about the ministries that we talk about today, or just questions in general, fill that out, drop it in the box in the back. It's also available in the Bible app, so if you've got that on your phone, you can grab that and get information there too. It applies to all of you guys online watching as well. A um, couple of announcements this morning. So food pantry, I, I brought a prop today. So food pantry, um, it's been very busy and we need to restock. So out in the lobby on your way out, if you're so inclined, grab a bag, you don't need a bag to do this, by the way. It's just a nice prop to do. And there's a list of things that the food pantry desperately needs right now. So if you can fill the bag up or just fill up grocery bags with these items and bring them back by next Sunday, that would be fantastic because uh, food pantry has been very busy. Um, so yeah. And then next, Pregnancy Decision Health Center, the bottles for, uh, uh, for Life fundraiser. We do these every year, the baby bottles. If you can bring this back by the end of the month, that would be fantastic. So we want to get those back to them as well. Um, and if you'd like to make a donation to them as well, there's uh, information in the Bible app where you can do that directly. And then finally, I'm going to invite Aaron Hendricks and the pastors on stage to do an extra special event. Give him a hand. Right. Thank you, Doug. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, hey, uh, we told you about this last week, but we uh, we hired Aaron Hendricks as our new uh, women's spiritual formation director. And we 
Yeah, we're very excited about this. Um, it, it is going to be a slight tweak in the role. That's why we've added the, the words women's spiritual formation director. There's going to be an emphasis on discipleship, on formation. Um, we really want to see this next season here at the church as a season where we are investing in uh, the women in our church and helping uh, equip them and uh, help help them follow Jesus. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about just the work that, that Aaron were we're commissioning you to do this morning. I thought of a verse in Colossians 1, 28, which says this, him we proclaim, it's Jesus. This is about Jesus, as we just sang. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So that's the goal is we're wanting as a church to help present ourselves and present you and all of us pouring into each other so that we can be mature Christians who reflect the image of Jesus. So presenting everyone mature in Christ. But then Paul says this, he says, for this I toil, struggling. Ministry is a struggle sometimes. But here's the key part, he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within us, within me. You see, we prayed it this morning in our programming meeting. Um, Apart from him, we can do nothing. But we have been given the Holy Spirit and so, uh, we believe that the Holy Spirit is going to use Aaron here to help pour into the women in our church. And uh, so we're excited for that. And so we want to give Aaron just an opportunity to say a few words here, and then we're going to pray for her. Well, hello, ladies. <laughs> um, I was going to say a few. We'll switch. <laughs> but then God cut me off. But really... Um, Really, though, I was going to say a few words, but then the Lord just told me to pray for you. So join me in prayer, because I just want to pray a blessing over you. Lord, um, you see these ladies, and you know them, and you love them. And I just pray um, a blessing over their lives, Lord. I pray that as you direct them and take them on the next steps in their lives, um, wherever it is, you have planned for them to go and over whatever terrain it is that they are called to walk lord i pray that they would know that you're with them and that um you've always been with them and you always will be with them and lord we um just ask that these women would become who you want them to be in you and that you would just unleash them in freedom to serve you and to love people well so i pray this blessing over them Jesus name. All right. Well, now my turn to pray for you. And so we're going to lay hands on Erin here and commission her through prayer to this work. So, all right. Father, we thank you for our sister. Thank you, Lord, that you have called and equipped her to this work. And Lord, we commission her to, uh, to lead and to equip the women in our church, Lord. Father, we ask that you fill her and empower her through your Holy Spirit. Father, apart from you, we can do nothing, but with you, Lord, all things are possible. And so Jesus, would you uh, just, uh, again, fill Aaron right now, would you give her uh, that wisdom that that verse in Colossians talked about to help, uh, help present this body, this church, these women mature in Christ. And so Lord, we commit her to you, we thank you for her. We thank you for, uh, for this body, and in particular for the women that make up this body, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.
Okay. If you're here for the first time, I'm Chris, and uh, we are working through a little book called Titus. It's our fourth week. And um, I thought we'd begin this morning with a thought experiment. The people that know you from your work world, what do they say about you? What are you known for? You know, diversity is the big buzzword of our day. Many of you at your workplace have sat through a diversity training. Why do companies do this? Well, it might be PR stunt or could be genuinely trying to build bridges. But nevertheless, the thought experiment is suppose your company organizes an international diversity day and organizers want to have a representative from every major religion. Now, some of the religions are easy to pick out. Finding someone Muslim is not difficult. Everyone knows Ahmed. Not too long ago, a private prayer room was set aside for him and a few others so they could keep to the required prayer schedule that fell on work hours. And everyone knows when Ramadan is because Ahmed follows it without any embarrassment. And what about someone Jewish? Well, in the same way, everyone knows Sarah is Jewish. She's proud of her heritage. Her boss knows not to expect her to work any overtime on Fridays. She's out the door promptly for the beginning of Sabbath. And her coworkers know she will not join them for the end of the week happy hour. And then the organizers need to find a Christian. And so they ask around and they, they ask your boss and your colleagues about you. What would they hear? What would they find out? Is your faith public and evident? Would they pick you to represent the Christian faith? This, friends, is the thrust of the book of Titus. Are we known as people who adorn the truth? Now, in our passage today, Paul answers the question, how is this kind of godly living possible? Will you stand as we read God's word together? It's Titus chapter 2. I tell you what, let me, if you're using the Bible in front of you, let me just quickly find that. First Timothy, second Timothy, Titus. It is page 998, okay? I'm going to start at verse 9. Here's God's word. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior, the grace of, the grace of God our Savior. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning as you show us how to pray and you lead us into a place where we can sing and 
express gratitude to you today, Father. And we pray that you'd continue to lead us now as we come together as a body before your words and try to integrate them into our own lives. That indeed, Father, we might make this message we believe compelling to all that know us and see us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can have a seat. Now, if you were here last week, you maybe are noticing we're backtracking a little bit, and we are. Uh, Rich mentioned a few things about slavery last week uh, in the Bible, and I just want to expand on this a little bit because it is an area of great misunderstanding. And one reason for this misunderstanding is because in our own history, Christian slave owners use texts like we just read to justify slavery. Just a horrible distortion to God's word. Now, slavery in the New Testament is quite different. And for instance, uh, it has significant differences in how slavery was practiced. How slavery was practiced in New Testament times has significant differences with how it was practiced here in America. Now, when discussing a subject like this, I think it's good to hear from our black brothers and sisters. And one such man who was immensely respected in the American church was John Perkins. John Perkins just recently passed away. Uh, but before he passed away, he wrote a book called One Blood. And it's something of a memoir. He was 87 when he wrote it. And he wrote this about slavery. He said, even from Old Testament times, it was understood that involuntary servitude was not pleasing to God. Consider these verses. Exodus 21, 16, he who kidnaps a man, whether he sells him or he is found in his possession, shall surely be put to death. Wow. The type of servitude that scripture endorsed was indentured service. Again, this is getting at to the differences between slavery in the Old Testament and what appears to be slavery in the New. But he says the type of servitude that scripture endorsed was indentured service. In those cases, the bondservant willingly chose to work for his master for a determined amount of time. At the end of the time, he was free. Now, any slave who ran away from his master, thus expressing his desire for freedom, was to be welcomed by the Israelites, not mistreated, and not returned. Again, Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16. You shall not hand over to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall live with you in your midst, in the place which he shall choose in one of your towns, where it pleases him. You shall not mistreat him. Again, close quote from John Perkins. Now, I recognize on this topic of slavery in the Bible, there is some more nuance here, and there are other scriptures that need to be teased out. Some of the, again, the nuance involves historical context. They were so unlike our own context here in modern times. And you can't make blind apples to apples comparisons. And while Paul does not call, he does not call for social upheaval, there is plenty of evidence, plenty of evidence that his teaching on this subject was subversive. 
And it plants the seeds for future upheavals that were done in Jesus's name. Now, if you're interested in reading more on this topic, I'd recommend to you a book by Dan Kimball. And the book is called How Not to Read the Bible. And this book addresses slavery and other parts of the Bible that are confusing to modern readers. Okay? All right, so let's close the book on that important subject. Okay, let's turn for our main concern today, verses 11 through 15 in Titus 2. And again, Paul is answering their question, how is this godly living possible? Now, in terms of what Paul says here, think of it this way. What do you do when you're lost? Now, you may not get lost anymore. I still do. Even with all of the beauty of today's technology, I still get lost. But you might remember getting lost in a previous age. Maybe you feel lost emotionally or spiritually. And when you get lost, you have to answer two questions. Where have I come from? And where am I going? If you have those two poles fixed firmly in your mind, then you can figure out where you are and what direction to head. Not being lost, or you know, being lost is not a great thing, right? Being lost is not any fun. Conversely, confidence that you are moving towards a desirable and attainable goal is really fantastic, right? Now, in this section, Paul gives two poles for us. Again, where have we come from and where are we going? And the answers are the cross of Jesus and the return of Jesus. Here, I think, is the big idea of these verses. The cross of Jesus and the return of Jesus inspire good works done for redemptive purposes from a whole heart and rooted in a distinctly spiritual identity. We'll come back to this at the very end of the message. But the end result of this is a church overflowing with good works and good words. You see, we are alive today between these two significant events, the cross of Jesus and the return of Jesus. They are literally earth-shaking historical events. And our lives find purpose as we grasp where we have come from and where we are going. Now, in the text, look specifically at verses 11 and 13. And you'll notice here that Paul uses the same word two times. And this word is rarely used within the New Testament, but here it is used twice. And it is the word appearing or appearance. Now, the root of this Greek word is where we get the English word epiphany. And it means for something hidden to be suddenly and gloriously visible. Or it is a sudden realization of a previously disclosed truth. That's how we use the word today. For example, you might say about some newly revealed insight on how to fix your electric fan. You say, I had an epiphany, right? But the way it is used here in this text is just a bit more weighty. It is here to indicate significant points 
of God's salvation history. Let's look at both of these epiphanies or these appearances, and that will form the outline of our message, okay? Look at verse 11. The first appearance is the cross of Jesus. We look backwards to the cross. And it says in verse 11, it says, the grace of God has appeared. Now, where did this grace first appear? Where did this grace appear? Verse 14 gives us the clue to the answer. Look at verse 14. He gave himself to redeem us. Gave himself is the language of the cross. The cross. He gave his life. He gave himself. Where? At the cross. And what does it mean to redeem? Let's just spend a moment on this to make sure we understand what it means to redeem. To redeem assumes that we owe to God all that we are. We were created by God, through God, and for God, for relationship with him, to bear his image to every creature and to all creation. As God is just, so we were to be just. As God is kind, so we were to be kind. In close relationship with him, we were designed to be free and to flourish. But what happened? How did things get the way that to be to the way we see them in our world? Well, what happened is, is that we, human beings, demanded control. We rejected his rightful place in our lives. We used his gifts intended to bear his image for his glory. We used them for our own self-gratification and for our own glory. And in that condition of running from him, what did the sovereign and holy God do? The sovereign and holy God offered to redeem us or to buy us back through the payment of his own life, the life of the son. It was through the cross and resurrection that Jesus redeemed us. And that is why we say Jesus is our savior. This is what grace does. Matter of fact, in this scripture in verse 13, if you look at verse 13, this is one of the strongest in the New Testament that affirms Jesus' deity alongside the fathers. This is what grace does. It loves you when you deserve judgment. And you really can't understand grace until you first recognize that you deserved and that you deserve judgment. You know, I still remember the moment of time when the reality of grace came crashing through my thick skull, very thick. I was standing in my parents' garage as a 19-year-old in my hometown of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. I was on summer break, and honestly, friends, honestly, I was religious, and I believed in God, and I was convinced, I had convinced myself that I had to attain moral perfection and salvation through my own strength. And honestly, it literally put me on the brink of mental collapse. Then grace, grace broke through the overwhelming realization that God loved me because of who he is 
and not how I had performed. And literally standing there in my garage, the tears just flowed uncontrollably. It had been a four year journey of ups and downs, of epic pinnacles and collapses and constant prayers to be saved and going up front at every altar call, searching for assurance. All that came to a screeching halt when grace broke through. Now again, look at this passage. Notice what grace does. It does not sit still, our idle treading water. It is grace that trains and shapes and inspires us. It is interesting, Paul uses the word grace here. Again, a little thought experiment. If you're looking at that text, if you're looking at the text, if we were to remove verse 11 and went straight to verse 12 and we read, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Okay, honestly, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you would have said that grace does that? How many of you, your first mind would have gone to, oh, that's a result of grace. I mean, we may have said that such godly living can only materialize through a strenuous spiritual program or through tremendous effort or through fresh resolve. Maybe we'd have to join a monastic order or a convent. Well, those things have their place. But the emphasis of the spirit goes beneath the surface to our heart motivations. Grasping grace, the Spirit says, is what motivates us to be godly, which simply means to be like God and to love what God does and to be loved by Him and to love Him. You see, grace shapes more than our behaviors. Grace shapes our heart, our desires, and our affections. How? How does grace do this? Well, when we grasp grace, it results in gratitude. And in gratitude, we begin to worship. And how does that make godly living possible? Because we become like what we love. We become what we worship. Do you see the relationship here, the linkage that's being drawn for us? Grace fires gratitude. Gratitude brings us to a place of worship and worship transforms our desires and what we love inevitably spills out into who we become. We act out of who we are. And that's why in verse 14, Paul hits on identity. We are his possession. We are his people. That is who we are. God has been unfolding his plans at the beginning of time, a salvation history, desiring people for himself who love him and love what he loves. He is purifying us from a love of superficial things, from empty self-gratification, what Paul calls worldly passions. You know, when you own something, when you own something, when you buy something, when you purchase something, the thing owned begins to take on your personality, right? Right? Sure it does. You shape it into the image of what is important to you. Think about how your car reflects your personality, right? 
the things that matter to you. Think about your bumper stickers, right? What do your bumper stickers say about you? You might value family, you might value pets, you might value other things. What about the dice hanging from your rearview mirror? What does that say about you? Or what does the 70s shag carpet still in your living room say about you? Seriously, right? We belong to God and he changes us as we learn to worship. He changes us around the things that reflect his values. Now on the opposite side of godliness, Paul says is worldliness. What is worldliness exactly? Here's a definition from David Wells. Worldliness is that system of values in any given age which has as its, at its center our own fallen human perspective which displaces God and his truth from the world and which makes sin look normal and righteousness seem strange. It thus gives great plausibility to what is morally wrong and for that reason makes what is wrong seem normal. That is what worldliness does. Now, friends, I'm only going to be with you for a few more weeks before my sabbatical. All right, I'll be gone for five weeks on my sabbatical. And if I might, in light of this coming summer, if I might just take a brief diversion here and comment on David Wells's quote, and I'm just going to do this ever so gently, and then we'll return to the passage. But I believe that this quote is helpful in explaining the conflict in our culture surrounding abortion. And I say this with gentleness because we as believers know that we ought to empathize with mothers who find themselves in an unwanted pregnancy. And we ought to raise our voice against men who stay long enough for the pleasure but bail on the responsibility of being a dad and we agonize with those who face very complicated decisions when the life and the health of the mother is, is at risk. And finally, we ought to support women who decide to keep their babies. Uh, as was mentioned, it is why we annually support the work of PDHC, who helps women who are in distress, who determine to choose to keep their babies. And it's why many of you volunteer for PDHC. With that empathy in place as believers, still, the Bible calls us to protect and to speak up for the weakest and the most vulnerable among us. We here at Linworth, if you're newer, we are persuaded by a biblical conviction, a conviction that is reinforced by scientific observation, long-standing scientific understanding, we are convinced of the sacredness of life from conception, through life, all the way to death. Incidentally, it is from this same well of thought that we condemn any form of racism. Friends, this is not a political position at Linworth. We don't hitch our cart to political parties or candidates. This is a biblical issue. It is one of righteousness. And yet, as David Wells said, that this righteousness to our culture seems quite strange. 
with the historic ruling on Roe v. Wade to come out later this summer. Linworth, friends, let me urge you as Paul calls us to be gospel-centered citizens, let me urge you to reflect on all that we are learning from Titus. It is of such great relevance. Let the theme in the beginning of the next chapter guide you. Because in this debate, in our culture happening right now, it has been vicious and it will likely grow more vicious. And Paul's words in the beginning of the next chapter will help us stand out and to adorn the gospel. Here's what Paul wrote, Titus 3, 1 and 2. He says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good word, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Now, again, uh, some of these things in this text need to be teased out uh, because the context is a little different. But what I am seeking to highlight this morning is the underlying attitude and respect that we are called to maintain for those who malign us or for those with whom we are in sharp disagreement. And my urging to you as your pastor is in this season where the cultural conflict is going to certainly intensify, let us be the people of God who speak for the unborn in a way that adorns the gospel. Okay? All right. Close that door. All right? Let's go back to our text. How does grace train us? Okay? How does grace train us? I want to do just a little bit more work on this, and, and then we'll go to our second point. How does grace train us? It's important for us to realize that grace is not the same as religion. Remember I said grace creates gratitude and gratitude results in worship and worship creates an eagerness to do good. Religion can't do that. And while we do not know exactly the false teaching that was working its way through the Cretan churches, all false teaching, all false religions bear several consistent factors. And religion cannot produce gratitude because every human religion is essentially a negotiation. At its root is a transactional exchange where God owes me after I perform the right ritual or say the right words. Good works done through religion are part of the bargain. I earn favor, I earn acceptance, I earn whatever prize I am after, which is not a relationship with God, but it is a thing I want and demand God to give me, albeit prestige or power or comfort or protection. Now with this religious mindset in view, some mistakenly think that grace means I can do whatever I want. Yet. That attitude reveals a total misunderstanding of grace. It shows that my heart has not really grasped the significance of grace. This is where faith intersects with grace because faith is the confidence that God loves me. 
Grace, according to Paul, motivates me from within because I have tasted something, experienced something, felt something in my soul. The goodness of God and the beauty of an inner righteousness. Religion seeks only outward conformity, not inward transformation. Grace thus inspires me to say no to things or people or goals that detract me from being godly. All religion can do is provide an external pressure to conform. It would be like someone trying to bend a steel bar by applying tremendous pressure. Has to be a strong person. But as soon as that pressure is released, the bar goes right back to its original shape. Nothing in essence had changed. Pastor J.D. Greer told the story of a young man on a college campus who was very promiscuous. And he loved to brag to his buddies about his sexual exploits, how he could control women and get them in bed. Now this particular young man, it wasn't as much about the sexual pleasure as it was the power. Well, he grew tired of this game and his friends began to share Jesus with him and he professed to become a Christian. And so he just jumped headlong into Christian things and activities with new friends and attending new groups. He stopped having sex. Sounds great, right? Not so fast. His friends noticed something wasn't quite right. In their meeting and their studies, he always had to be the one leading, the one at the center, the one in control. You see, he did not really have Jesus. All he had was a shell. All he had was religion. The power he exercised over women was simply transferred to exercising power in a new setting over Christians. In a few years, predictably, he fell away. You see, the pressure to conform without inward transformation can come from well-meaning friends, family members, church, spiritual leaders, or it is also sometimes only in the perception of those who feel pressured. All be to say, the conclusion is this. Grace, grace, Paul is saying, not religion, brings godly living in a surprising and a beautiful and a holistic way. The cross is where we begin. So let's go now to our second point. We'll be a little briefer with this one. The cross is where we begin. That's the first pole where we have come from. But where are we going? That's also needed to not be lost. Where are we going? And look at verse 13, what Paul says, where the word appearance or appearing shows itself again. Waiting, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The second pole is the return of Jesus. We look forward to his return. Again, recall what we said earlier. We now live in the in-between of these two great salvation events. Now this return is described in the New Testament. All will see it. No one will miss it. It will stop the clocks. If you ever doubt Jesus' future return, you must remember his promise that he would come again. 
And remember, the promise that he would come the first time was supernaturally, miraculously appeared at the incarnation. The first time Jesus came, it was for the cross. But when he returns, it will reveal his glory. Glory in the New Testament points to indescribable beauty, and majesty, and unlimited power. For the moment, the glory of God is hidden. It's not that it's not there. It's hidden. But it will suddenly appear when he breaks through the clouds. His hidden glory will be made plain so that all can see his grace and his beauty and his justice. Friend, do you long for that? Do you long for that? On that day, he and everything he represents will be vindicated. In other words, it'll be shown to be true. The church will say on that day, how just are his judgments. And friends, our glory as well as believers, our glory is now also hidden. We are sons and daughters. We are prince and princesses. We are queens and kings today. On that day, our glory will be revealed. Salvation history from Genesis to Revelation contains the thread of a story that culminates in God possessing a new humanity, reconciled completely to him and reconciled completely to one another, perfectly one, a kingdom of priests. We too, we go from grace to glory. That's the day that we wait for. Now, this is not like waiting in traffic for the signal to change. This is, this is not like waiting impatiently for a dinner that is 45 minutes late. No, it's negative wanting. This waiting is a confident expectation, a longing. Like you long for Christmas Day when you were a little boy or a little girl or a big boy or a big girl. Like you longed to visit grandpa and grandma. Like you longed for your wedding day if married. Like you longed for the opening night of Die Hard. The new Die Hard. Okay, not quite like that. I'm so out of it. I, even when I try, it just, flood, it, just, it just falls apart. We were talking about that movie on Wednesday. Let's go on. Quickly, quickly. It's waiting based on a sure and certain hope. Now, this is a little counterintuitive, right? Because to our thesis, in our thesis, we have said that focusing on these two great events will create good works. But you might suggest, wait a minute, if a person is waiting on the return of Jesus, will that not demotivate them from doing good works here? A pie in the sky kind of thing? A person who's so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good? No. No, it has the opposite effect. You see, the restoration of all things through Jesus in the age to come should so captivate our imaginations that we are informed on how we should live today. When God restores all things, when God reunites heaven and earth through Jesus, there will be justice, there will be reconciliation, 
There will be the alleviation of suffering. There will be oneness. There will be relational intimacy. Dignity will be ascribed to everyone. The lowly will be exalted. Those who mourn shall be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth and the spiritually lost will be found. You see, this picture of how life will be causes Christians to work for it today. Corey Bacher, over, sitting over here in his world religions class, has pointed out how the picture of the afterlife impacts every religion. Hinduism, for example, has a very different picture of the afterlife, and that picture impacts their concepts of justice and equity in the here and now. You see, this waiting is not inactivity. No, it is an expectation, a confident expectation that results in a constant stream of joy that envisions and enlivens good works. So, what are the two poles again? We look backwards as Christians living in the in-between. We constantly look backwards to the cross and we look forward to the return of Jesus. These firm poles are the engine, friends, to godly living and good works that adorn the gospel. Works that will make the evidence for you being a Christian conclusive. Now, thinking about a little bit about this journey towards heaven that we're on, we're on this journey coming from the cross to the return of Jesus, we're on a journey. I read something this week that really struck me. In the 1860s, the Navajos were moved to a reservation away from their ancient homeland. And this was done by a United States, a Union general. Uh, he was very idealistic and frankly, he was paternalistic. And he wanted to save them. In some ways he had good motives, yet his interests were largely self-serving. And his experiment in social engineering was a total disaster. Taken from their native homeland, they experienced one poorly planned disaster after another until one third of the tribe had perished. It was an awful four or five years. Finally, the person responsible for this effort was relieved of his duty after being roundly criticized from every, every corner. The new person in charge set into motion the moving of the remaining Navajos back to their native lands and hunting grounds, a space actually about the size of Ohio. As told by Hampton Sides in the book Blood and Thunder, on June 18, 1868, Navajos began their journey with an army escort to protect and feed them. And in yet another mass exodus, this one voluntary and joyful, the entire Navajo nation began marching nearly 400 miles towards home. The straggle of exiles spread out over 10 miles. When they reached the Rio Grande and saw the Blue Bead Mountain, now the Blue Bead Mountain was one of their ancient sacred sites. It provided one of the borders for their land. When they reached, saw the Blue Bead Mountain, the Navajos fell to their feet and they wept. And they continued to march toward that country that they had told their young children about. And as they marched then that final way, this is what they chanted. 
beauty before us, beauty behind us, beauty around us. In beauty we walk, it is finished in beauty. Now I thought about this, I was quite moved by it. And I thought, is there not something of an analogy here for us? You know, when we arrive at our home, when we arrive at our home, will we not recognize it? Will we not recognize it as we might the familiar smells and sights of, of home? Will we not say all along when we are with Jesus in the new heavens and new earth, will we not say, this was my home all along? This is the place that was created for me. This is the place where every longing is fulfilled. These are the relationships where I can love and be loved fully. That other world was but a shadow of the real thing. This is what we wait for. It is finished in beauty. So, let's return if we could, just to wrap things up here in conclusion. Let's return to where we began this morning, what I thought to be the summary statement of these four or five verses. The cross of Jesus and the return of Jesus inspire good works done for redemptive purposes from a whole heart rooted in a distinctly spiritual identity. Briefly, some ideas for application for you make this practical. First, we are to keep our focus on Jesus. It's pretty hard to do these days. There are so many distractions. So I want to encourage you to spend time meditating and reflecting on the cross and on the return. Let them go below skin deep to a place where they move your heart and affections. We are so acclimated to superficial thinking we think for things in a quick minute and then move on to the next topic, right? I mean, Snapchat is the nap metaphor for the way that we think and process today. But friends, spiritual realities and truth requires time. It requires meditation. It requires focused reflection until they move not just our minds, but they move our hearts. As a church, as we stay focused on Jesus and share his values, we should be overflowing with good works and good words, exposing evil, alleviating suffering, and pursuing justice and mercy. Now, some of these good works, some of these good works may look similar to good works that are being done in our culture. And there are many causes and service days and charity events. And we may find at times that we can even partner effectively with secular organizations where our goals overlap. But notice in my definition here that I said redemptive purposes. See, our good works are multidimensional. They are done for the kingdom of God. So to my good works, I add good words. And we add good words because we are commanded to fulfill Jesus' commission. 
And our good works are a part of fulfilling Jesus's great commission. So if I'm starting a school, if I'm helping to clothe people, if I'm helping to end sex trafficking, I look as well for ways to verbally communicate God's redemptive purposes to build the church. Now next, notice I said from a whole heart. Religion does good works flowing from a bargain to gain something from God, to absolve my guilty conscience. Religion seeks just to do enough. Religion impedes the flow of love. When grace instructs us, we are free. Friends, you'll never be more loved by God than you are today. Even if you could do good works every day, 24-7, around 100 clocks for a thousand years. God will love you no more than he loves you right now. We are loved, period. If you are a believer in Jesus, we are accepted, period. So now I can love freely. And finally, my good works flow from a distinctly rooted spiritual identity. They flow from who I am as a follower of Jesus. They flow from inside of me. You know, we learn through our Emotionally Healthy Spiritually class how to slow down, right? To be with Jesus. The spiritual discipline to be quiet before Jesus, however, as the class taught us, does not call us to inactivity or to only contemplation. Just the opposite. When we serve from the inside out, my actions now flow from a place of spiritual health and emotional maturity, not just running around activity. They flow from calling. They flow from calling. This kind of activity, friends, does not burn out. <laughs> it doesn't grind one down. It doesn't get reduced to a mechanical duty. Nor does it use others, nor does it convey paternalism. It serves, it enriches, it awakens, it blesses others. So let let's us be a church focused on Jesus with an overabundance of good works and good words flowing, flowing from a free heart from our identity as the people of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. David and uh, Caleb, come on up. We are going to um, take communion together. And so if you didn't uh, get a uh, communion container on your way, just feel free to go grab one. They're right out in the lobby. You can take this anytime during the service. And what a perfect day for a communion. For Jesus said, when he said, take this cup and take this bread, what did he say? He said, the, the bread is for my body, broken for you. The blood is for the forgiveness of sins. What was he saying in essence? Remember the cross. And how long did he say to do it for? Do it until I return. And so this next segment of our service, if you're new, this is all about us being able to respond to the word of God through prayer, through communion, through singing, and to grasping the significance of grace, to be filled with gratitude, and then to enter in to worship, to allow him to change us. So let's worship together. Again, you can take the bread and cup anytime.
during the next three songs.
wounds have paid my ransom. Oh, but this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my
scripture says the Navajos, when they were traveling, they saw that mountain. They were just amazed by its beauty. This is what we have looking forward. I just want us to sing this out with that same excitement, with that same love, with that same.
the night is dark, but I am not forsaken. By my side, the Savior, He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need, His power is displayed. To this I hope, my shepherd will defend. sure the price it has been paid for Jesus blessed and suffered for my pardon and he was raised to overthrow the grave to this I said that he will lead me home and day by day I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne to this I
I'm so glad that you were able to experience this morning with us. And, and, uh, and again, a welcome to those of you that are new to Limerick this morning. So glad you could experience the love of God and the grace of God with us here this morning. You know, I said that when I was 19, I had that first breakthrough of grace in a, in a profound way. But that's not the last time that's happened. I have found through my journey that there are these boxes, these paradigms, religious paradigms, religious boxes in my life that God still has to keep breaking for me to truly experience the freedom that he desires for me. This morning, if in the course of the talk, the Holy Spirit was speaking to you and saying to you, son or daughter, I have boxes in your mind and heart that I wanna break. I wanna break them piece by piece, nail by nail. I wanna break them so that you can live more freely and love more fully. And maybe for some of you, it's the inability to receive love. Some of our boxes, some of our religious boxes keep us from being able to receive when we can't receive love, it's really, really hard to be able to give love fully. So, so uh, our ministry time continues, whether it's fellowship or whether it's praying for one another, or you can come forward when you're released. And, and if you'd like to receive prayer from one of our pastors or a member of our prayer team, I'll be here as well. And we would be so thrilled to be able to bring you before him who is the ultimate lover, the one who can ultimately set you free. One announcement, going down to the practical. Parents out here, okay, so our uh, Hispanic friends, our Hispanic service has got a special event today. It's Mother's Day part two for our Hispanic friends. So parents, we need you to pick up your kids in the fellowship hall as soon as the service ends so they can get set up for that, okay? For a final benediction. So simple, at the end of the book of Titus, Paul simply says, grace be with you all. Amen. Amen.